This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Ahoy! Oh, crap. Wrong episode. (laughs) All right, well, this is your non-pirate infectious disease doctor, Dr. Santosh. Glad you haven't lost your sea legs. (laughs) I don't know if I even I could beat that introduction. But here I am, proud as a Sandman, slowing down your brainwaves, hopefully not all the way over the radio. <laughs> so we have to move on from, from pirates, but this week we have uh, something almost as fascinating and just as backbreaking. Nice. <laughs> no one? Really? Come on, that was a gem. <laughs> it was good. It was good. We are going to take a look this week at chiropractic medicine. I frankly am so vastly unqualified to talk about this that it only made sense to go out and get somebody who actually knew what they were doing. So I managed to look up the director of the, I believe from the last picture I saw, the Bacon? No, the Beacon Clinic. <laughs> Former <laughs> consultant to the WHO and pediatric chiropractor and also a wonderful friend, Dan Bronstein. Hey, Dan. Everybody, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Hey, man. Welcome to the show. Before we get into the practical medicine, I do want to bring up a couple things just to give you a little non-clinical background on Dan. We have known each other since, oh, probably around middle school. Uh, we had a number of classes together. We're friends, and I know two facts about Dan, which I'm going to share with you, and he can choose to confirm or deny. <laughs> One is that... Like me, he also knows every single word to the Animaniacs country song, among many, many others. And two, and important for a chiropractor, I believe, he has cartoonishly large thumbs. <laughs> I want to see a picture. He <laughs> has a picture and you can put it in the show notes when we release it. Nice, yeah, nice. absolutely. I have to say, you know, you know, in terms of medicine, right, maybe one of you guys can... Uh, in here, I'm pretty sure that one of two things happened when you said big thumbs. Number one, I played Rad Racer until I literally cut off circulation to my thumbs when Oof. I was a little kid. For all of you millennials who played you know, NES, I'm pretty sure you guys know. Yeah, that. haven't we all? Absolutely. I, I, was, I was quite a thumb sucker when I was a kid until about 57 years old, and I, I'm convinced that that played a role in it. Yeah, that's probably a little bit more information than you guys want to know about. No, not at all. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
So this week we're going to be talking with Dan about chiropractic medicine. And before I give him a chance to show what it's actually about, you know I was going to have to go digging through history to learn a little bit about the etymology, of course. We haven't done those in a while. And where chiropractic medicine began, which is, since it's a slightly younger field, I believe, than traditional allopathic or osteopathic medicine, has a bit, uh, it's a bit closer to its fresh roots. So let's start with 1895, back to, yes, the of course, era. the Victorian era. This was in a time after the Civil War when really there was still no medical licensing and anybody could become a doctor in terms of apprenticeship. There weren't really any formal medical schools or very few which were putting out so there was no standardization across the field. So you had a lot of really well-known professionals and a lot of, for lack of a better word, quacks. <laughs> One of these, and I will let you decide which, was a man named Daniel David Palmer. He, at the time, ran a clinic based on the healing power of magnets. Working at, a, at an academic facility, ran across a partially deaf janitor who was cleaning the halls. You know, kind of a Matt Damon sort of figure. Okay. Harvey Lillard. Lillard was working in Palmer's office, and he had been known to be deaf for years. This wasn't like he just sort of walked in. He was a known <laughs> employee of the area. Lillard bent over to empty the trash can, and Palmer noticed that Lillard had a large lump in his back, which he surmised was a vertebrae out of position. He asked Lillard what had happened, and Lillard basically said, ah, you know... I'm old, I moved the wrong way, there was this pop in my back, and you know, ever since my hearing's never been quite right, and my knee feels the weather, and those kinds of claims. Now, he was half deaf, but whether or not it was truly linked to a pop, who knows. Palmer said to himself, I can fix this. He had Lillard lie face down on the floor, and then proceeded to adjust his back, and I couldn't find anything on the exact mechanics of how he did it. But I like to picture it something like the Simpsons episode where Homer just shoves <laughs> Lenny over a trash can. And Lillard gets up and he feels great. You know, he goes back to work. He's like, wow, that actually feels a lot better. About a day or two later, he comes back to Palmer's office and he tells him, you know, I've been feeling great. And now I can't stop hearing this racket. Like my, hear my hearing's been fixed. And D.D. Palmer said, this bears investigating. He basically came up with a theory that, well, I'll... I'll let Dan explain, you know, sort of maybe the history of, of chiropractic theory so I don't get it too far wrong. But I will tell you that it was named with his friend, Reverend Samuel Weed, who suggested combining the words kairos and praktikos, both from the Greek and meaning done by hand to describe this treatment method. And he then founded the Palmer School of Chiropractic, which is now called the Palmer College of Chiropractic and I believe still one of the, the larger universities. Is that correct, Dan? It is. Uh, things have changed quite a bit then, but uh, it's considered the fountainhead of chiropractic. And the school later on was taken over by his son, B.J. Palmer, who really increased the regulations, started increasing some of the scientific backing, a lot of the enrollment, and who may or may oh. not have murdered his father. Totally unrelated, totally unrelated to chiropractic. Well, maybe a little related. I believe they had differences of opinion on how the field and the school should be run. Now, he was never convicted, but in its day, this was almost as scandalous as the OJ trial from the two oh, wow. newspapers I was okay. able to track down. Wow. Right? Because huh. you imagine, you're starting a whole new field of medicine, and the two sort of founders, or the two best-known figures, are related, and when one of them dies in a car accident a few days later, or dies of unrelated complications from being hit by a car driven by his son. Hmm. Huh. Who can prove anything? We'll come back to some of the other historical things in a bit later, but to just cover some very basic terms so everyone's on at least my level of understanding, which admittedly is not high, chiropractic medicine, much like osteopathic medicine, and for everyone listening, the field of medicine that Santosh and Praz and myself and Ward and most of our hosts here practice is known as allopathic. But osteopathy and chiropractic, from my understanding, both kind of view the body almost as a, a machine or a delightful steampunkian robot whose parts can be manipulated and realigned and readjusted all without medications to produce a cure 
and how much it can produce a cure for has been a, a constant source of debate between our two fields. Western medicine have for many, many years taken a less than favorable view of chiropractic, calling it, I believe, from a uh, 1974 case, a bunch of bunk. And that's being polite. Well, so... Yeah. Word that was used in the deposition was unscientific pulp. Huh. Nicer than it could have been. Uh, that said, those were also in the early days, and chiropractic since I believe a 1987 antitrust case, and who knew medicine could have a monopoly? But since a 1987 antitrust case where we all had to shake hands and agree to play nice and be civil, uh, chiropractic has really come a long way as a field, and it has a lot more evidence backing, although still a few different philosophies. So I think at that point, we're all caught up with the history. And Dan, why don't you take us from there and sort of explain what chiropractic medicine is today? Okay, so before we get going, I think we should just clarify a couple of terms. There are essentially two different types of chiropractors, and this goes all the way back to essentially what you were uh, you're talking about with regards to BJ running his dad over. Allegedly. Was, allegedly. Allegedly. You know, and I got to be honest with you, I, I keep company with a, a lot of hardcore chiropractic philosophers, and that's a very controversial statement for sure. Okay. But chiropractors have always been very divided, and uh, there's a lot of theories as to why that is. I think most of them are sociopolitical in nature. Uh, there's some historical precedents there to, to explain possibly why uh, chiropractors tend to fight so much with each other. But simply put, there are two different types of chiropractors. There are the mixers, which are, they tend to be the more evidence-based, uh, more or allopathically oriented reductionist types of docs. They tend to be focused mostly on things like back and, and neck pain, uh, spinal syndromes, if you will. And then there are the principled and or straight chiropractor cast. I, I'm actually one of those guys. Uh, and we tend to be a little bit more crazy. At least we're viewed that way in, um, in the zeitgeist. I find that there are applications for both. You know, as a, as a chiropractor, especially a chiropractor who sees lots of kids, my top priority is to make sure that we build bridges with other physicians so that there's understanding across the board. We live in a community where it's fairly rural and access to primary care is it's a challenge. My, my number one priority with the kids that I see and the adults to some degree is to make sure that they can be as healthy as they possibly can without the use of medications. And that's not to say that I'm a medical doctor because I certainly do not prescribe meds, nor do I take my patients off. It's prohibited by my scope of practice. But we help them through a variety of challenges to make sure that uh, these, these families are as healthy as possible, which I think is what any physician would want, right? Oh, sure. So that brings up a couple, a couple questions for me. Prescribing medications isn't in your scope of practice and that you, you tend to focus mo mostly on back and neck pain or those, those were the mixers? No, those tend to be more more of the allopathic-oriented mixer chiropractors. And, you know, it, that's that's not to say that I don't see a value for them. I mean, as a, as a straight chiropractor, I, I see a huge value in chiropractors uh, conservatively addressing spinal syndromes. Um, because mm -hmm. I hate doing it. That's great because I have plenty of referral sources if necessary uh, to send some of these folks out uh, to get conservative care before we go down the medical route. So what sort of treatments do you offer? And before you answer that, how is, you know, assuming that one of your answers is going to be chiropractic manipulation, yeah. I'm going to go out <laughs> on a limb here. Uh, Josh, the one I'm going to ask for, this show takes the risks. Let it be said. But how are pediatric manipulations different from adult ones because I, I have to confess to you Dan I just watched Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and I hear pediatric manipulation and all I can think of is baby Groot <laughs> oh man so now you're uh, now you're preaching to the choir I'm an adult with a uh, very childlike comic book dorkiness to me that's a really good question so I know that taking care of kids is very controversial especially when it comes to things like risk management because there's a lot of controversy coming out of countries like Australia, where APRA, which is the main regulatory board out there, is putting a lot of pressure on chiros because they are, are putting sort of blanket statements into the zeitgeist that uh, chiropractic is dangerous. And it really isn't if you have somebody who's who's board certified, gone to school, who's trained extensively in, in pediatric care for a chiropractic adjustment 
for a little baby, for a toddler, for a school-aged child is, is very, very gentle uh, because we're not getting the same kind of high-velocity force into the spine that you might use for an adult. I have to laugh because that Simpsons episode that you're talking about with regards to the amazing Spinalator, which I think oh, is yeah, what yeah. they called the trash can, <laughs> that's what most people think of when they think of chiropractic. It's either that or John Cryer's character from Two and a Half oh, Men. Yeah. The fact is, less tends to be more with the type of work that we do. A spinal adjustment for a young child requires patience and requires gentle, sustained contact and because there's a lot of cartilage in play they haven't developed their facet joints uh, their uncinates haven't developed it's it's totally inappropriate to create that high velocity force into the spine what we're starting to see i think from some of the the neuroscience research is that it's also inappropriate in terms of input to the sensory the sensory cortex via the cerebellum we know that most of the kids that we're seeing these days can't tolerate the same types of uh, sensory input that uh, even two or three generations ago could I take more of a long game approach, see what little inputs uh, make change and then adapt accordingly. One of the things that I will tell you, especially in the world of chiropractic right now that's in vogue is that uh, we tend to see a lot of sensory kids in my clinic. I work hand in hand with occupational therapists, uh, speech therapists, behavioral therapists, because I am required by my scope of practice to make a diagnosis. I can case manage a lot of these children via a variety of different complementary therapies and, and we help them quite a bit. So what, kind, what are sensory children? On the outside peak, the extreme, we would call these kids, I would say autistic. It's controversial because there's a lot of different diagnostic indicators for what creates an autistic child, as I'm sure you docs are aware. I would call that the extreme, right? I see a lot of pandas and pans kids as well, and those tend to be... Uh, you should so probably that. also say what a panda is because... Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, really what we're looking at is like severe sensory proclivities, oppositional behavior, and uh, we think that it's associated with either long-standing bacterial infection or some sort of other chronic uh, disease pattern. The less severe side, you know, we see a lot of attention deficit disorder kids. When, when Dan keeps yeah. saying um, sensory issues or sensory problems, this is a term used by both chiropractics and physical occupational therapy. Here's the kind of the layman's view of this. If you've ever seen a kid who doesn't like to be touched, it's, by and large, these are boys. Um, occasionally, they're girls. What are you trying to say, um, Santosh? Uh, <laughs> this boy, time and time again. <laughs> I'm just trying to show you affection. We're not going down this road. <laughs> so yeah, people who are who find who are very sensitive, often to at least one, if not multiple, oh, modes. Right. Through which we receive touch information. Touches the most common. Touches and, the most common. Uh, like Dan was saying, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable where I, when I'm wearing tight-fitting clothes, or I don't like the texture of this particular food in my mouth, whether it's too slimy or grainy. I don't like the feel of this uh, surface when I touch it. I don't like this particular sound. Okay, I don't <laughs> like my hands being sticky, but who does? All right, let's all just stop judging for a moment. And playing yeah. around terms like tactically defensive. Yeah, someone, someone, there's some defensiveness. Dan, you mentioned that one of the things that you do not do on children is high velocity force. Please explain more about your iron fist. <laughs> I wish you knew me a few years back, man, because that was my nickname when I served on the student ACA, the National American Chiropractic Association Board. Um, they called me Iron Fist. My vice president was known as the Velvet Glove because I, I like to smack people with kindness and she liked to uh, talk people nice. down. It's really important to understand that, that chiropractic care is, is perceived as this relatively violent procedure. And I think there's a generation gone by of chiropractors who came through uh, managed care in the 70s and 80s after that Wilt case that you described where chiropractors essentially won uh, that antitrust lawsuit against the AMA. These chiropractors, you know, could see patients on most uh, insu most insurance coverages, you know, with no out-of-pocket expense. So a patient could come in, uh, they could pay nothing up front, no copay, no nothing. Uh, chiropractic could bill for three, four, or five hundred bucks a visit, uh, and they could do whatever they wanted. And so there was no peer review, there's no critical appraisal. Um, an adjustment was an adjustment was an adjustment, and there was no study as to whether or not intensity or repetition or or any of that stuff was actually affecting the neuraxis or the nervous system in a meaningful way. 
right? Things have changed quite a bit. Um, it's predominantly because of the way that the healthcare culture has evolved, I think, as pertains to alternative medicine. Now we have a generation of millennial parents. They want to be involved in their healthcare decisions more so than they ever have before. We know that millennial parents want to make decisions uh, in tandem or in concert with their doctors. They are more drawn towards alternative therapies, whether they're evidence-informed or not, that they tend to be more open to things like eating clean. You're talking a little bit about this in one of your previous episodes, uh, what constitutes like a clean diet, you know, but I think parents are at least asking those questions. And so chiropractors have had to adapt the application of their tool, which is the adjustment in a way, not only that parents can better understand, but that's safer, that's more repeatable. That gives us the outcomes that I think that we're, we're really looking for. To answer your question from a little while back, Dr. Josh, predominantly my tool in my practice is an adjustment. It's essentially taking a, a vertebrae that is not moving effectively or it's not juxtaposed uh, appropriately to the vertebrae above or below and uh, move it back into position. But it's not so much the mechanical side of things that I'm really concerned about. I'm more concerned about neurological inputs and the changes that we get as a result of that movement that leads to the, the results that we're looking for. And for any lay people who are listening is, what we're looking for is symmetrical sensory feedback to the brain, specifically via the cerebellum. And I, I think we have some pretty amazing research and some pretty amazing tools at our disposal now to be able to get those objective outcome measures. Could you explain a little bit of this philosophy behind how adjusting a vertebrae can influence the neurons and the cerebellum? I guess the question can be framed in two different ways depending on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to physicians, essentially what we're doing is we're firing one afferents directly from the spindles that are associated with the, the really fine muscles attached to each of the vertebrae, we get a unilateral blast of sensory input up to the, the side of the cerebellum that can cross over in the brainstem to the sensory cortex, to, to um, homologous columns, to the motor cortex, and to the prefrontal cortex. And we actually have research that shows that this is actually happening now. It's pretty fascinating. There's amazing research coming out of a, one lab in New Zealand that's been super prolific on this. For lay people, essentially what this does is when we get a fast movement into the spine or we get, even if it's not forceful movement, certain very special receptors in the spine to work that have not been working when things are stuck. And that lights up parts of the brain that actually get it to fire more efficiently. Again, like I said, we've been able to do somatosensory evoke potential studies, functional MRI studies uh, that, that have shown this. Chiropractors for a million years have, have talked about how we get all these crazy health benefits as a result of chiropractic care, but we've never had any legitimate objective research to show kind of what's going on. That's why, you know, when we talk about like Harvey Lillard, the story tends to be perceived as apocryphal because I don't think any real chiropractor believe that his hearing was restored because of a thoracodorsal chiropractic adjustment, right? In the old days, maybe, but not anymore. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, Josh, but that's that's probably the way that I would explain it best. Yeah. Okay. So it's your, your fist doesn't start glowing and when you move the, the spine. Uh, no, no, I just I want that show to be good so badly, and it's show. just... Uh, before we get into some of the terms, one of the specific reasons that I was so excited to talk to you is not just because you're a friend who I've been very happy to reconnect with, but also because you are really approaching chiropractic medicine from an evidence base, as you mentioned with this functional MRI and things. And I, I believe that some of that added air of credibility and gravitas is from the fact that you mentioned you worked with the... WHO. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Totally. Okay, so I mentioned before that I had served on the National Board for the American Chiropractic Association while I was in school. Um, I also served on the board of the World Congress of Chiropractic Students and uh, several committees there where essentially we're policy writing bodies. We make recommendations. Local governments can take them with a grain of salt or whatever. I, I had a friend and a colleague who applied for an internship at WHO, which had never been conceived of before uh, from a chiropractic perspective while I was like a second year in school. As a result of her very hard work working in the traditional medicine unit, which traditional medicine at WHO is the same as complementary and alternative medicine in the States. She was asked to encourage other chiropractic students. Um, and so I applied and I was accepted in my third year of school. I, I worked predominantly with the traditional medicine unit to create gray guidelines is what you would call them that discuss safety, right? And, and the reason is because there are many, 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 many member states uh, in WHO who do not 
have sort of chiropractic programs or laws or regulations. As you guys know, this is a safety problem. This is a, a regulation, a reliability problem if governments don't set standards with which people can be trained. That was my task. I wrote a 36-page meta-analysis over the course of four months on the safety uh, of chiropractic care that was used, I think, in, in later documents. Um, and then after the fact, I was invited back to consult uh, after graduation with a totally different unit at WHO, Department of Innovation, Evidence, and Research. But we worked predominantly on what's called the ICTM project, which is the, inter, uh, the International Classification of Traditional Medicine, which would be used in the rollout of ICD-11, which, as you guys know, is the International Classification of Disease Revision 11. We just got ICD-10. I believe we have alien abduction. And it includes such things as hit by space debris. That is a real code. Look it up. You know, and what's so crazy about this is like, you know, ICD-10, I know you guys have much, you have a much more, I think, working knowledge of what the international classification of disease actually means and what it does. But chiropractors essentially just use like one or two codes. We use M99 codes. And the craziest thing about ICD-10 is there's 10 different codes for subluxation or manipulable lesion or bone out of place or whatever you want to call it because nobody could agree on a definition that's stuck. So... <laughs> When we get to ICD-11 and ICTM, um, the whole goal was essentially to crowdsource it. We were, we were there to create what's called a mechanical Turk, where we yeah, would yeah. get, you know, uh, 2,000 or 5,000 uh, You wanted Wikipedia. <laughs> essentially, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yeah, and that's essentially what ICD-11 will be. It'll be crowdsourced to doctors all over the world based on their credentials so that we don't have multiple definitions of one disease. Um, it's pretty fascinating. Um, even from a chiropractic perspective, you know, I, I think, you know, one of our biggest problems is that we don't have a clearly defined of what it is that we're actually doing. And I think it's because chiropractors, as a profession, uh, we've historically had bad peer review infrastructure and we're poor at critical appraisal. We kind of believe our own BS, which is one of the things that I, as a doctor, am trying to fix. WHO was a very short part of my career. I was there for a grand total of eight months, and I, I feel like I left my mark. But even as a principled or a straight chiropractor, I, I want to make sure that everything that I do in my clinic is evidence-informed. It's good for my patients, it's good for the public, and it's good for healthcare in general. You know, I tend to be a little bit more vitalistic. doesn't exonerate me from that fact, you know what I mean? However skeptical we may we may be. And as you've just said, there's been a lot of good reason in the past to be skeptical, given the fact that my profession still thinks of yours by and large as an unscientific cult. So, right. you know, anyone who's listening, you know, we brought somebody on who is actively involved in the writing the guidelines for standardization. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned a vitalistic philosophy. What does that mean? Vitalism is founded on the idea that the body doesn't really need any outside-in help to stay healthy, very much founded on inside-out health. We just don't need any interference. And so I think chiropractors have really championed the idea, for example, of healthy eating. Yeah, so I find that chiropractors tend to champion those types of ideas where we can help our patients take control of their own health. There's an empowerment piece that comes with vitalism, for sure. There's a buddy of mine who practices in San Francisco, and he tends to be the informer, quote-unquote. Like, anytime a chiropractor does something stupid and advertises something uh, egregious, he'll be the first guy to blast it all over social media. We oh, just had a conversation about a chiropractor in Australia who was claiming that he could cure cancer with chiropractic, which I think is a huge step too far. But I think there's definitely something to be said about giving people those basic tools to help yeah. them take responsibility for their own health. You know what is not fair, Santosh? It turns out yeah. that chiropractors all get super cool code names at graduation. Let's see. So far, we've heard the Iron Fist, the Velvet Glove, and the Informer. All I ever got, all I ever got out of this was the Closer. That was, yeah. and that was not a positive nickname. Roz, you're a guess. I admit it. You have a cool nickname, but it just seems like every new chiropractor we hear about has like some Batman-worthy supervillain. Before you know. though, we tend to lose our imagination over time. I struggle with this when I name a new protein. Can we not call it, you know, just protein number five? Can we do something new? And we struggle with it when we give each other nicknames. It's, uh, you know, we're just, uh, sometimes we have our noses a little too high in the air. Well, speaking of nicknames, obviously naming is something that is very important in any field. Uh, names do kind of help make people feel a lot more comfortable when there's a specific name for what is happening to them or a name for a treatment, regardless. Now, a couple times you have brought up the word subluxation. 
And I want you to help clarify that because there are actually two different definitions, at least as far as I know. One is a chiropractic definition of subluxation, and one is the our standard medical definition. And they totally. vary very subtly. So if you could kind of go over that for us. Yeah, and I, I knew this was coming because I swear every time I go to a research conference, there are chiropractors shooting spitballs at each other because they cannot agree on what this uh, term means. Um, and it goes all the way back to my experience at WHO. Um, for all intents and purposes, a medical subluxation, as you guys know, is a, something less than a luxation, right? It's, it's uh, all played. Right. Well, no, and you know what's so funny is that I swear every time we talk about this, this is what comes up. So imagine like 100 chiropractors in a room arguing over whether or not a subluxation is actually less than a luxation, right? It's, it's essentially less than a full dislocation, right? Now, in the traditional world, word uh, or in the traditional sense of the word, a subluxation is essentially a, a vertebral body or a motor unit that doesn't function the way that it's supposed to. It's either out of position or it's uh, more appropriately, it's not moving in yaw, pitch, and roll correctly, or it's not moving in three dimensions in coupled motion with the remainder of the spine. And going back to what we talked about a couple of minutes back, uh, Dr. Josh, this is measurable specifically with certain afferent feedback models, looking at somatosensory evoked potentials, for example. We do a surface thermography to determine whether or not we're getting output symmetrically the way we want to. We do even surface electromyography without the use of needles to determine whether or not we're getting motor control function the way we want to symmetrically. Once we identify those spots, uh, we get them moving appropriately again and, and we get those objectives to change in the way that we're... For instance, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, what you mean is a mild dislocation. A surgeon would be talking about a shoulder, a hip, a elbow, any of these things. And in chiropractic medicine, you're going right. to refer specifically to misalignment of the spine. Yes, yeah, so you could say that. I, I have never been married to subluxation as a term. Chiropractors like to have their own lexicon because they feel that it's protective of their unique art, science, and philosophy. I just got done reading a, a fantastic sort of philosophical investigation of chiropractic history, and uh, I, I think... I think that's why it's so controversial. Um, it gives us our uniqueness. But it's also very confusing, right? Um, I've had chiropractors that I've spoken to who are very well regarded in the research sure. world. So if we could have way. traveled back to 1900, I would say, or right around there, 1890s, I mean, we, we saw the introduction of a very powerful tool, statistics. I mean, you're looking at unifying various diagnoses and syndromes just by saying, I want to take a population of people and see what percent do what. And all of a sudden, medicine went from describing individuals to a describing pools of people and trying to then figure out the the detailed differences between them. And this was how we were able to kind of codify medicine into what it is today, into the system of recognition, diagnosis, and treatment. And the, the, it sounds like your discipline, Dan, is going through these growing pains right now. Kind of ironic because I, chiropractic technically, I think, has been around longer than, than well, well, no, no, not at all. But, um, I mean, um, and so it's to, taken to us, answer that, it's taken us longer to come full circle like than it has for you guys, which is uh, um, kind of disheartening. And, you, know? you know, organic chemistry and biochemistry, which predate medicine and then found its way because all of these disciplines kind of coalesced. Because before then, you know, doctors were just throwing chemicals around, right? Trying to see what sticks. And uh, we were getting by literally adopting the sciences of organic chemistry, biological <laughs> chemistry, and later on microbiology, physiology, and folding that into what today is modern medicine, um, you know, this was a, the same type of thing. It was, a, it was a disparate set of skills, and each person had their own opinions on pretty much everything. So... You know, we, we do have a lineage here, and we're watching the same type of lineage and history come together in the discipline of chiropractic medicine. Now, the question of, you know, where it's going to end up, 
that's the cool part. You know, we're, we're kind of growing up with it right now. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is when I was doing my, my reading up on kind of what spinal manipulation is, I came across a lot of terms which some sounded awesome and others, you know, like the same boring stuff that we use. And I was hoping you could tell me at least either explain some of them or tell me if you use one specific one and what's involved. So some of the different says different techniques for spinal manipulation include diversified, activator, <laughs> Gonstead, Thompson, Nemo, uh, and there were a whole bunch of others. But at a while, they started sounding like Power Ranger moves or <laughs> at the very least names of failed transformers so what are you know are all of these techniques used are they all equally valid is there one particular one are they good for different things like what what do all the words mean and i don't expect you to give me your whole lexicon in in a single session but but i think it might help to know if your primary focus of practice is is spinal manipulation what's involved in that yeah, and that's that's also a great question, Josh. You know, we take it for granted as chiropractors that we all have different flavors of practice. I, I call chiropractic technique kind of like kung fu. Um, a lot of what we do is there's a lot of art to it, and so it's passed down by other masters over the course of many generations, um, and it tends to be uh, homogenized, like in the educational structure. Um, but I got to be honest with you, my my adjusting style, my technique. Um, was learned almost exclusively outside of school um, because uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of minutiae that goes into adjusting let's say like a, a 70 year old spine uh, versus like a two month old spine um, and uh, to be quite honest like it's not taught really all that well uh, in the chiropractic college uh, environment because uh, it's very academic and very sterile, uh, and it takes out the uh, the individualist approach to it. Um, I'm also I would also say as sort of like a, like a precursor to this explanation that um, in addition to techniques being different and uh, applications being different, chiropractors themselves are very different, which is why it is so challenging for us to come up with a gold standard uh, placebo-controlled trial on what it is that we do. Um, I'm not immune to the, the fact that the Cochrane database does not look favorably on what we do for common interventions um, for things like neck and back pain. Um, but honestly, it's because uh, every chiropractor applies his trade uh, differently um, and not all adjustments are the same. Um, I know master adjusters who have been doing this for 40 years who are brilliant at doing what they do. Um, and I know chiropractors who are just fresh out of school who couldn't adjust themselves out of a paper bag. Um, yeah. I imagine that, you know, being a physician, uh, you guys yeah. see the same things, right? <laughs> Residents are not nearly as knowledgeable or experienced as doctors who are, you know, have been in that position for a really long time. Um, Let's just say that they shouldn't be. Right. And I agree with you there, right? And that's honestly, I'm glad you bring that up because honestly, that's what we're pushing for. We want to see a good residency-based infrastructure for our, our, our docs. Yeah, there, there are multiple different techniques, and a lot of the techniques have been studied over the last 100 years by a variety of different doctors. They've researched them, and they've published them, and chiropractors come on board, and they learn a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, the diversified technique is kind of like the coverall technique. It's what we're taught in school. It's essentially find the high bone and push it down, right? I mean, and that's pretty simplified, but in terms of like the physics equation, you're finding the vector, right? And you're moving the bone in the position that it should be in. It's very mechanical. It's mechanistic, very reductionist, and it's nothing like what I do in my clinic. I, I teach a specific, what's called a tonal approach all over the world called MC2, a technique and an approach that was designed, cultivated by a mentor of mine who's been in practice for over 40 years. Essentially, what it does is it's it's a system of identifying tonal changes in the musculature in the spine and looking for weak links putting sensory inputs into that system in a way that's meaningful so it tends to be a lot more low force a lot more specific i, I say a lot more flair in the type of adjustment that we do well um, as you have to you have I, to contort I find myself videotaping or... myself adjusting my patients quite often for the purposes of teaching and i look back at myself adjusting and i'm surprised i'm not destroying my own spine in the process it requires a lot of speed and and i think speed is really what separates the wheat from the chaff in our profession. It's it's finesse. You really want to melt your brains. You should go back and search on YouTube for BJ Palmer uh, performing upper cervical toggle adjustments. It's, it's incredibly fascinating because 
it really takes that you know force equals mass time ex acceleration equation and just personifies it. Activator is a pretty popular technique as well. It uses an instrument, a spring-loaded instrument, to move things. And the Activator 5, which is the most recent tool that's come out, is a pretty sophisticated computerized piece of equipment that measures uh, tone in real time and adjusts itself, no pun intended. Um, old school Gonstead practitioners, which use x-ray analysis quite regularly to look at how the structure is adapting and changing over time. Developed by a guy named Clarence Gonstead, who uh, was rumored to have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And so he had some pretty significant trouble with his hands and had to adapt the way he adjusted as of a sort of gnarling effect that comes with joint degradation. Logan Basic, which tends to be based on sort of like the the tension in the cord and the tension in the back muscles. And so you can kind of uh, allow some of that unwinding to occur in a very low force model. We, we have Thompson, which is a, a, a drop table based technique where you get on the table and there's a, a piece that comes up about three eighths of an inch. Uh, you put a force into the spine, the table drops out, the spine moves and stops when the table stops. They're all very, very comfortable, very specific techniques. And it just really kind of depends on the practitioner, you know? I don't know if there'd be an analog in, in Western medicine or allopathic medicine that way. Uh, it tends to be very practitioner dependent, I guess you could say. We're starting to see at least, if not a standardization of one technique, at least a standardization among each technique. I would say, yeah. Remember the evidence-based stool has three legs, right? You have the, obviously the best research, best evidence there, but you also have the practitioner's experience coupled with, you know, what the patient needs. Practitioner experience weighs really heavily in this type of approach to care. And like I said, you know, whether a chiropractor has performed 10,000 adjustments or 15 makes a big difference in terms of their outcomes. And we actually have decent data to back that up. I published um, in my meta-analysis with WHO, I actually cited a paper that looked at the difference between outcomes in students versus the outcomes in experienced doctors. And uh, I mean, obviously we found a huge correlation there. To some degree, yeah, there is standardization. I, I think there's... When it comes to something that you can measure, for instance, on a blood pressure cuff, every time you use that particular blood pressure cuff, you know, you can measure that person's blood pressure accurately. Right. But even something as simple as this, we've been told time and time again, resting blood pressure should be done with the right limb. So that means your right arm at heart level after the patient has been sitting for at least five minutes. This sounds like it should be a really basic thing. Find the patient's blood pressure. Well, in fact, the gold standard for blood pressure is at rest and actually with a catheter, you know, in the vein, actually measuring the blood pressure directly. When you're using a surrogate, like a blood pressure cuff, it has to be done very specifically. I mean, just in the diagnostic phase, it has to be done right, or you're not getting an accurate measurement across your population hmm. that you're trying to measure. So standardization is a, is a big deal. And when you take a discipline uh, that admittedly say, you know, this, this has a huge amount of art to it, and that can apply to right. chiropractic medicine, and it can apply all the way to surgeries. And uh, the truth of, you know, it, in a fantastic example, when VATS, video assisted thoroscopic surgery, that means putting a camera into the chest, just making a little hole, and you putting a camera into the chest in order to drain out fluid, for instance, if a child has pneumonia, it for a long time actually increased the mortality of the child receiving the procedure. And it took a while for surgeons to actually get good enough at the procedure to where all of a sudden this turned around from being a risky procedure to a life-saving procedure in the right context. So yeah, you have to be able to take a technique, you have to be able to deliver it, you have to be able to standardize it, you have to disseminate that information in such a way that you have a large number of practitioners that all know what they're doing at the same level, and then you can study it. So this is not an easy task. And I would add on top of that, yeah. Doc, that we need peer review, right? I mean, it always comes back to peer review. And I think that's what's so important with what we do, at least in my mm -hmm. clinic, is is we do that. I mean, we do grand rounds in my clinic. We do peer review. We do critical appraisal. It's necessary so that we can raise our game. And I'm firm, you know, I'm a firm believer of the, uh, the adage that a high tide raises all ships. I think my profession is at a crossroads and if you <laughs> sure, don't sure. start working towards that, we're right, in right. real trouble. You... And so are our patients. The, the hardest yeah, part yeah. about what we do is we cannot find a reliable placebo because you know 
if you're being adjusted, right? Now we've tried, we've tried to come up with a placebo and it no, doesn't that... really work. So, <laughs> well, see, hey, 30%. Correct. Right, you know, and so we have no hit, way of knowing whether or not we're influencing our patients that's, with a placebo a or not. Chunk. And, you know, honestly, I, I joke with my patients all the time. I tell them, you know what, I don't even care if what I do is a placebo as long as it works, right? <laughs> well, let's, um, let's, let's jump in right into that. Okay, so there, there's a couple different things, right? In the pediatrics world, chiropractic care is becoming, let's just say, in vogue. I think it's in vogue predominantly because of what we talked about before. Like, millennial parents tend to be associated all things that are alternative. As such, it tends to be low-hanging fruit for practitioners who want to build their businesses, right? Managed care is drying up in California. Covered California is a nightmare for chiropractic. So people will have chiropractic benefits, but they don't cover adjustments. So what's the point, right? And so parents are starting to realize that they got to start working towards self-care and chiropractors realize this and they can they can have a cash-based practice without having to worry about billing insurance. Now, the, the hard part about it is that you do not have to be board certified in our Academy Council of Pediatrics in order to see children, which I have a real problem with um, because, you know, I did four years of fellowship work postdoc in order to be able to do this. And I, I don't, for the safety of the public, I don't really want doctors just to start adjusting kids as if they're little adults, which is, is a problem. I don't know why, but we all start out with, this is what we know about adults. Let's try to apply this to kids as if they're little adults and we fail for a good long time and then we have to fix it. Well, and talking about contraindications, like there's nothing more contraindicated in, in a child than a high velocity adjustment. And it's because they do not have the facets right or the unsnit to uh, appreciate the load that comes in uh, as a result of that type of an adjustment. But we still have chiropractors who are performing these moves as if it's totally safe and and, uh, and not just safe, but also like therapeutic, and it really is. So, you know, one of the things that I'm working really hard with, with the International Chiropractic Pediatrics Association to do is to create this sort of postdoc residency-based infrastructure where we can have docs, you know, doing this work in a didactic fashion um, under very experienced, very well-trained pediatric doctors uh, to help deliver that standardization that you're, you're talking about, uh, to help deliver you know, a higher level of care. Hopefully, we'll come to it soon. I, I, think it's, I think it's something that chiropractic doctors are really clamoring for. They want it, they need it. It's just a matter of time until we're able to create the infrastructure for it. So. All of us have sort of been there, and we all, like, we all complain about it while we're going through the motions. But in the end of the day, I think it does work to the benefit of our patients that we spend all that time and effort into our training. So I do think, especially for a field that's not very well understood and that could really have some serious outcomes, especially, I mean, for children in an early developmental stage, I mean, I completely agree with you that it's critical to develop that standardization and develop like a set means of training, you know? What, what I tell my patients and what I tell the public is, you know, obviously I've, I've got a pretty big clinic. You know, I see, I see anywhere between 80 and 100 people a day. 50% uh, of those people are under the age of five. And it's just the, the, the setting, the infrastructure that I have in my clinic to allow that kind of volume. It doesn't necessarily mean that my outcomes suffer, right? I, I tell my patients that I'm looking for objective improvement with everything that we do. And it could take time. It could take some repetition. It could take some, you know, increases in, in sensory input, right, or uh, intensity. Um, but, you know, I, I shoot x-rays and I want to see change on x-ray. You know, I, I do a lot of neurological objectives with my patients and I want to see neurological objective improvement with my patients. One of the things that I see quite often is I see either delayed or latent primitive reflexes in my kids. And I, I want to see these things change as a result of the care that we give them. I tell my parents, like, if you go to a chiropractic office and you're going because it's convenient, but you're not seeing change, <laughs> and you're not yeah, seeing yeah. the improvements you're looking for, then you need to find a new chiropractor because they don't know what they're doing, right? Um, it's not too much to expect to go to a physician or a doctor and get what you pay for. Doc, Dr. Josh asked a little earlier, oh, to, let's expand the acronym first. Let's tell the people. Totally. To right. psychiatric and neurological syndrome, PANS, which we recognize because we see these kids who have maybe tics, attention deficit disorder. They have changes in behavior that are acutely correlated, not just with strep throat, but with any... Right 
febrile infection. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, like the most recent case that I was involved with, it, it appears that onset occurred uh, spontaneously with the uh, onset of an Epstein-Barr flare-up. And there was this pattern that some practitioners would see where these would get worse after a bad cold or a bad upper respiratory tract infection or specifically with strep throat. And I think this paradigm has, is being built Although some kids will have just a baseline of tics or neuropsychiatric disorders, there are some children who seem to worsen any time that something creates global inflammation in the body, like infection. Um, Mono is an interesting one because once we have Epstein-Barr virus, we have it forever. It's there living as a resident in our B cells. And the viral load can increase and decrease and increase and decrease for the rest of our lives. And most of us will never know it. Um, but we don't know actually if this is actually, if this is really true, but there are well-studied groups of children that seem to have it worse off when they have a bad childhood infection. And for some of these kids, this correlation goes away as they get older. They actually grow up and these tics and these neuropsychiatric behaviors can completely go away. Um, for a small subset of other kids, it stays with them for life. But we have found now in mouse models, mm. um, I believe in a few uh, other human models, when we draw inflammatory markers and compare it with a control population, that for some children, not all, that they're tick disorder or their ADHD is linked somehow with inflammation and inflammation specifically caused by infection. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say that that's pretty accurate with what I see in my office. I mean, probably the most common symptom that I see associated with a PANS kid, or at least a kiddo that I suspect is, is a PANS kid, is oppositional uh, and or violent or defiant behavior that is acute. Um, right. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's, it's really sad because the parents come into my office totally sort of bereft of, uh, of any, you know, answers, uh, of any, you know, objective, you know, outcome. With some disciplines, there seems to be headway. You make headway where, you know, more chemical-based medicine doesn't work. So chiropractic, as well as if you have access to it, things like um, mindfulness meditation, yoga, um, you know, these type of internal feedback disciplines that address the patient a little bit more intimately. Yeah, and you know, and you, this segues greatly into kind of the mm -hmm. last point that I think you want to make with regards to, um, to <laughs> collaboration, because I, I absolutely 100% value collaborative efforts with these really difficult cases. And, you know, to be fair, my clinic does attract pretty challenging cases because my, my knowledge base tends to be a little bit more um, uh, comprehensive, I'd say. Um, but it doesn't make life any easier, right? And these cases, you got to keep your head on the <laughs> swivel. And, you know, honestly, you're talking about global inflammation, especially when it comes to neurological stuff. Um, if we, for example, see a kiddo that comes up and we suspect that there's a blood-brain barrier issue, which I see fairly frequently with these kids, um, we're suspecting like microglial cell activation on a massive scale, which means that they're going to have a whole bunch of other issues that are related uh, circuitously to, to these symptoms that may seem unrelated at first. You know, I know this is a lot of really controversial, but I see a lot of issues with gut permeability with these kids. I see, uh, I mean, Josh was talking about things like celiac disease on this, uh, this pseudo pseudoscience episode you guys put out a few weeks back. And I, I have to agree that there's right. a lot of controversy around whether or not somebody can be gliadin sensitive um, without being a celiac patient. And I, I think that you could take the research uh, either direction, honestly. I see a lot of kids with methylation errors that show up with these issues. I see a lot of kids with mitochondrial disorders that will show up with these issues. And you can't just focus on one symptom treating, per se, if you're going to help these kids get better. I mean, my, my bread and butter with these kids is to handle some of the neurologic uh, sensory input issues and then work hand in hand with OTs, with speech therapists, with pediatric P uh, uh, physical therapists, oh, with pediatricians um, who are a little bit more open-minded. What's the word? Um, I work with functional medicine uh, doctors as well. Um, and between okay. the five or seven of us, uh, we create a team that helps. 
and I gotta tell you too, I'm sure you guys see this. Like, it ain't all sunshine <laughs> and rainbows either, right? No, you get a lot it's. Of ups and downs uh, I and think the word you're looking well. for is a nightmare. It's a nightmare, <laughs> um, and the reason for this is I have my set of tools, which is honestly, it's medication. Um, there's quite a bit of time where my Night. tool is avoidance of medication. Adios. One of the things I do as an infectious disease doctor is tell you that that's a viral infection. I'm not giving you antibiotics. And yes. it's very, very important, you know, to, to use that particular tool. But <clears throat> we do know that yeah. some children will respond to antibiotic therapy because, you know, for instance, ceftriaxone actually works on neurons and it can quote unquote perk a person right. up and make them feel better temporarily. But, you know, they're using an antibiotic for a neurological reason, which is a terrible thing to do. So, you know, I, I have a, a set of tools and because we are under the FDA and because research is kind of slow and plodding for, I think, a good reason because we try to protect the patient first. Um, you know, there's a limited number of things that I can prescribe or give in order to abrogate the symptoms of something like PANS. Because truly, the infection may be there as a, as a trigger for someone's worsening of their symptoms in something like PANDAS, but it's not the real cause of what's going on. They're, the real cause of what's going on is something that I can't address, which is their baseline response to infection. Um, and this is a genetic thing. It's uh, it's an environmental thing. It's something that's a little bit inherent to the child. So if we find another discipline that can help just abrogate at least the symptoms, um, even if we're not necessarily you know hitting at the root cause, um, and even perhaps, you know, separate these children so that we know that, for instance, we're discussing one kid who has pandas versus another kid who just has ADHD because their brain is that way. And that, you know, it's, it's actually not panda. Having allies in every field is, is a fantastic thing. So it's good to know that we all know our limitations, but that we can all crosstalk with each other to fill the gaps. What sort of parting words would you have for for the rest of our listeners on either your particular practice or chiropractic and, and straight chiropractic in general? What are your final thoughts? The first thing that I'm going to tell you guys may seem uh, ridiculous, but you'd be surprised at what I see when I do you know peer review in my own pool. Um, and that's if your chiropractor does not do an exam on you, you got a problem. And you guys laugh, but you'd be surprised at what I see. The fact is, I do not know what's changing if I do not have a metric to determine where my care is going, right? Even if all I'm doing is correcting vertebral subluxations, if I'm adjusting, I need to know that what I'm doing is actually changing things the way that I want them to. Um, and if I need to course correct, then I need to course correct. So that's number one. Uh, number two, if you have a child uh, you would like to see a chiropractor, uh, um, the best way to, to do that is is to go to our our gatekeeper, right, for pediatric care, which is the International Chiropractic Pediatrics Association. It's the ICPA for kids .org. Um, there is a doctor locator there that actually shows which doctors in your area have credentials. I am certified by the Academy Council of Chiropractic Pediatrics. Um, so you can find all that stuff on that registry, and that's where I would start. I certainly would not bring your child to a chiropractor who does not have experience with kids because it is not okay. Really ask him a lot of questions, right? We know, again, that parents, they, they want to be involved in the healthcare decisions of their family, particularly moms. And so I would encourage you to ask questions about what type of care you're going to receive. Make sure it makes sense because if your BS detector is going off, uh, you're probably right. Do your work, right? Check the background and, and make sure that, that it fits. Certainly would not, would not agree with a lot of chiropractors who are quote unquote adjusting the hurt spots because uh, a lot of the time those are compensations for things that are, are going on elsewhere and the body <laughs> is 
kind of crazy like that. There's a lot of things that can be referred or radiated in weird ways. So again, it comes back to the first part where your chiropractor needs to do a pointed exam and, and go from there. And frankly, you know, if people have questions about pediatric chiropractic care, Josh, uh, you can put my contact info in the show notes and people can contact me directly. I'm happy to send them in the right I direction. I was just going to ask, where can we find you out in the world? You can find me on my website. It's www.chirobeacon.com. That's C-H-I-R-O-B-E-A-C-O-N.com. That's um, awesome. For those of you guys who want to look into research, I've got some articles that are on my website to help parents <laughs> navigate you know, some of the things I see. There's resources there, blog posts. Uh, as Josh knows, I have a podcast where I talk to other pediatric doctors about kind of what we do and recommend it. It's called The Kiddo Cast. It's a great podcast and it's designed specifically for parents. It's not designed <laughs> for other doctors. My office is in Grover Beach, California. It's Come out Grover Beach? <laughs> We'd love to show you around and see what we do. Stop it. <laughs> is it near or far? <laughs> it's a friendlier place. It's a friendlier place than uh, Oscar Beach, which is uh, full of trash and really angry. <laughs> Your information will be to- all in the show notes. As I totally interrupt for a Muppet reference, we've covered a lot of ground today, haven't we? From Muppets to Marvel to cool code names. Uh, but one of the last things that we love to do, especially when we have guests, is. We like to go a little bit far afield from the actual practice, and we travel a lot and get to visit fantastic places. So what about yourself, (laughs) then? Do you have a particular favorite travel destination or story? Yeah, actually, you know what? I didn't even think about this. I didn't know you were going to ask me this, but I have a great travel medicine story for you guys that uh, you're going to love. Okay, so Josh, you, you know that when I was in middle school and high school, I was heavily involved in the scouting program, right? Absolutely. I helped with your Eagle project. That's right. Boy, was that fun. Um, I am an Eagle Scout, heavily involved in scouting when I was a kid, to the point where next weekend I'm going to be speaking at an Area 4 scouting uh, conference. It was a life-changing experience for me. I got to do a lot of cool stuff. So when I was 18, I was training for a 75-mile backpacking trip. Back then, I was very fit. I didn't have, you know, the dad gut. I, I did a bunch of uh, a bunch of training, you know, to, to do this trip. And uh, we were out oh, in uh, Los Padres National Forest. It's only like a 25-mile trip. We were going three days or so. And when I we yeah. got on, we, we started on Friday. We hiked maybe seven, eight miles. I uh, went to sleep. I woke up uh, the next morning at 6 a.m. and I really had to use the restroom. I had to urinate really badly. And I couldn't. <laughs> and I was like, uh, this is going to be a really big problem, right? I, I mean, I was, I, I'd already, you know, I, I volunteered in hospitals, so I knew like not paying is, is not a good thing. So oh, um, I figured, okay, well, I'm going to drink a little water and I'm going to run around and I'm going to see if this whole thing kind of pans out. And it didn't. And there was a nurse that was there and, you know, I had no shame. I didn't care. So I was like, can you take a look and try to figure out what the heck is going on? Because it was really starting to be painful. And she was outside of her pay grade and she's like, I have no freaking idea what is going on here. So, um, so it was, it was real bad. And at that point, like the urgency was terrible. Like I could not empty at all. It was just in terrible doubled over pain. Holy crap. And so, um, I had my crew hike me out on their backs because I couldn't walk at that point. After like an hour of hiking, they realized, well, this ain't going to work. So we sent two of my uh, more robust, like younger crewmates up to uh, cars. Uh, they got their cell phones. They called in a helicopter and they airlifted me out to Ventura County. I get the most amazing Boy Scout merit badge ever. I actually rode in a helicopter out of Los Padres uh, National Forest. It's unclear as to actually what happened. One of the doctors uh, believes that it may have been a like yeah, a spirit. Yeah. Yeah, you had that I contracted that just it locally inflamed the the lower urinary tract. It could have been uh, I don't even know. It could have been something that like had pushed on like the mechanical parts of the urethra from the backpack yeah, I was yeah. wearing. Holy uh, cow. Nobody was able to really determine it, but they pumped me full of antibiotics, and uh, within like maybe two days or so, I was I was better. And obviously, they had to catheterize me because there was something going on there. Thank God they were able to get me to empty because <laughs> at that point, like I was afraid that my oh bladder. Oh my was God, that must have been terrifying. Um, all of it all of it worked out. After the fact, I saw a urologist. He was able to, you know, roto out like all the scar <laughs> tissue, and uh, haven't had a problem since. But um, I figure you guys would appreciate that because I love backpacking in that area. To this day, I still go backpacking awesome. out there.
there, but I still have awesome. that like you know black mark on my history uh, that always reminds me. I never know what's going to happen. So <laughs> I will admit straight up that when we were going to talk to you know, a pediatric chiropractor, I, I would like to give us a pat on the back, Santos, you, for <laughs> making far that's, fewer back-related puns I was, but than it's really I expected. Cool to talk to someone who has a wonderful, a good perspective on science, who understands limitations of the discipline, both allopathic and chiropractic and we had a really good which took away your opportunity to punt that gives me a potent weapon in the future uh makes me very happy so dan thank you in like many more ways than one well the feeling is mutual doc thank you very much thanks again to dan all his contact information will be in the show notes and listeners as always we love your feedback any ratings and reviews would be much appreciated as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. <laughs> me help. <laughs> With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 